The strategy is how can we help affirm men in what they already know is the ideal of the good man? You know, Romans 2, you know, we, we already know God's law is written in our hearts. So the strategy is how can we affirm and support and encourage men to be the good man that they already know? It's watering time, everybody. It's time for Apollo's Watered, a podcast to saturate your faith with the things of God so that you might saturate your world with the good news of Jesus Christ. My name is Travis Michael Fleming, and I am your host. And today on our show, we're having another one of our Deep Conversations. If you call me toxic for being a man, then guess what? I'm probably not going to listen to anything else that you have to say. But if you want to spur me on to be a better man, well, that's a different story. Today, we're continuing my conversation with Nancy Piercy about her new book. And I mean new. It releases next week. So go pre-order your copy today. The Toxic War on Masculinity. That's coming out. Last time, we talked about statistics and how the structures of the Industrial Revolution and the secularizing influences led to a split from traditional Christian notions of masculinity. We touched on how the numbers actually show how Christian men, especially evangelical Christian men, are doing okay, and how they are far, far better for women and children than is generally thought. If you haven't listened to part one, go back and listen to that one first. Because today we're building on that and diving even deeper. Our conversation turns toward the two scripts that men are given. To what the scriptures call us to as men and how women's roles shift and suffer too when men are not valued for who they are and who they are called to be. It's an episode that is going to enlighten the heart and the mind. And it's going to be a blessing to you. In fact, You have been a great blessing to us just by listening to our show, by tuning in each week, by commenting on our episodes online. You are a great blessing to us and your financial gifts. We hope that we've been a blessing to you. And we have a question for you. Would you help us to be a blessing to others, to continue to be a blessing to others? Would you do that? This show takes beautiful listeners like you to water the world. Simply click the link in your show notes and help us to be a blessing to others. And by giving, you will receive a blessing because this is God's ministry and God will make sure to bless those who support it. Now, let's get to the second part of my conversation with Nancy Piercy. Happy listening. You were quoting different scriptures where you're citing Paul, where we need to reach mature manhood. And you even cite the fact that you said it's not recurring to womanhood. That's not the opposite of it, but it's referring to being an adolescent. We need to mature up. We need to be working. We need to be engaging within society, within the public square in that arena, but we've become even more privatized. The more that modernity has continued to go on with, you saw again, industrialization, the, the, you see all of that occurring We've become more and more removed from our family environments, the invention of the car, travel, all these things. We've we've separated from those family structures that have helped define meaning for who we are to be as men. And it's continued on. One of the things that I thought was very interesting for you in the book is that you mentioned how people are, it, it's trans, it's moving backwards. Like the pendulum, now you're actually seeing a revolt to that where people are with the families again, with people that are working from home a lot. They're able to be with their children. They're able to interact. You even mentioned people moving in multi-generations into a home because we have that structure and we need it because there is a war on for the family. There is a war on masculinity and there's a war on femininity. Even the very essence of what it means to be a human. Daniel Strange, who was on the show, and he's the director of the Crosslands Forum, had mentioned in uh, Thermelios for the Gospel Coalition, he said, in the first century, we're arguing over the nature of Jesus. The second century, we're arguing over the nature of salvation. The third century, we're talking over, really, what does it mean to be a human? And being engendered, embodied human, and you're addressing that fact. How do we help our people to see not the secularized concept of what masculinity is that's been taught 
under this kind of underlying narrative or current that's carrying people along. But how do we help people to foster a biblical idea of what masculinity is, even though we've all been formed by the culture around us in ways that we don't even realize? How do we continue to really get back to that idea of masculinity, the way that God God sees it? Yeah, I'm glad you started with the phrase, be a man, because many people are using that both positively and negatively. You know, the progressives are using it negatively, like, oh, you know, this is a way that we impose toxic masculinity on boys. And then you see Christians arguing the opposite and saying, no, no, it means, you know, we, we should be we should be more masculine. And ironically, it only appears twice in the scripture. And both times um, it means grow up. It means the, the manhood is being compared to childhood, not to womanhood. It's not saying don't be feminine. It means don't be immature. And by the way, that's the meaning it had in America right until the turn of the century. Secular historians say that. They say when people use the phrase be a man in our own American literature, uh, up until the turn of the 20th century, they meant grow up, be mature. So they were taking that meaning from scripture. Um, and then secondly, you, uh, you can't write a book like that, uh, like this without having some practical solutions, which you alluded to as well. And that is, Many people are finding that they want to find a way to rebuild the family. Uh, the, when you mentioned multi-generation households, the, the number was in the 40%. Like, what? 40% of new homes? <laughs> of new requests are being made for, you know, I want, a ch- I want a place for my parents to live in a, a slightly, you know, separate apartment, but attached. I was amazed at the, how high the numbers are. That either for parents or for returning, you know, the parents have a separate apartment for returning children. <laughs> You know, but both of them. And since the pandemic, it has become more acceptable to talk about how important it is to flex the workplace so that you can work part time from home. One survey found that 65% of men said they got closer to their families during the pandemic and they don't want to go back to, to work full time. You know, they would like to have some you know, two days a week at home or whatever, some some way of having more time at home. And um, that statistic is in my book, Toxic War and Masculinity. But then another one came out more recently. So I'll tell you about this one because it's, it's not in the book. But the New York Times actually had an article with a title something like, uh, during the pandemic, many fathers got closer to their children and they don't want to lose that. And I thought, well, there's, there is a silver lining uh, to the pandemic. It has made it more acceptable. So I have a whole chapter on ways that uh, fathers in particular have tried to find ways to, to flex their work, have some time at home, even sometimes start a home-based business. I'll, I'll, t- I'll, I'll give you just one so for a concrete example. I had a student whose husband was an IT professional, and during the pandemic, he came home to work. And because he was home, he was able to be more involved with uh, the homeschooling. He was he decided he would be the one to make lunch every day. He began to be the one to take the kids to soccer and so on. And his wife, my my student, uh, was freed up enough from the family responsibilities that she started a part time job. She was a speaking of opera. We, we talked about opera earlier. She was an opera singer. One of my students <laughs> was an opera singer and so she started a part-time voice studio and the entire family benefited from the additional income so i interviewed her husband and he said our family our family life is so much more balanced now i am never going back to a cubicle and and the final kicker was he said the time that i used to spend commuting to work i now spend praying with my wife every morning so I tried to give examples like that. There's no general principle. All you can do is give lots of anecdotes to help encourage people to think creatively about ways in which they might be able to adjust the, their work structure. Surveys show that millennials are really asking for more flexibility because they want more balance. They want to share jobs and earnings and raising kids. You know, they want to share that a bit better between husband and wife. It's not always easy these days, but uh, so I have a whole chapter just kind of trying to encourage people to at least think about it. And women, too. I mean, I don't know. any. I don't know. I don't think I know any women who are home with children 
who are not doing some sidekick, you know, some some income producing activity on the side. So women have been doing this for a long time, trying to do economically productive work while raising their kids. And in a sense, recreating the colonial pattern, you know, where both men and women could combine childbearing with economically productive work. And so they both had they both had a better balance. You know, we kind of act like women were given the the half of the cultural mandate, you know, be fruitful and multiply. And men were given the other half um, to do the earth. But but they were given to both men and women. And I think both men and women are happier when they have a chance to have a more balanced life doing both parts of the cultural mandate. Well, that even alludes back to Proverbs 31, where a woman considers the field and buys it. That's what This is something that I think that the church has lost and has this very odd understanding of what the home life should be like. And it's much more of a captured moment in our history from the 1950s, the 1940s, even going back further. And, and you actually cite it again, coming through the 1800s and how the shape has, has gone. Even you allude to the fundamentals. You allude to how different people have understood it over time and novels. And then you get into the modern world, which I thought was very interesting because you reference Fight Club and then you reference incels, which is a term that you're seeing more and more. Describe this this group of, of young men today that are filled with a lot of angst within society. And they, they create this idea of this. I mean, they're grabbing a hold of this toxic masculinity idea and running with it. Do you remember that part of the book when you get into the incels? Could you elaborate on that for us? Because some people are wondering, what are you talking about right now? But we're seeing that group cause a lot of problems and abuse within the world. Yeah, yeah. well, the, the general term is the manosphere, you know, because it's a collection of, of groups on the internet that all have something to do with men's rights or big with men going their own way, uh, which is a group that says you should just, uh, you know, eschew women altogether you know, don't have relationships with women. Use them for sex if you need to, but you know, don't have relationships with them. Red pill and incels and involcils. Incels is involuntary celibates, and volcils is voluntary celibates. Anyway, there's this whole group of men uh, who are obviously very alienated from society. And many of them do hold up a very toxic view of masculinity and say, yeah, okay, this is what we really are. And they they're in the news because a, a couple of incels have actually committed mass murder. They've been so angry at women that they've gone into a place. Uh, well, one of them was a fitness gym, you know, and shot 12 women. Uh, one of them was uh, uh, Elliot Rogers was the best known because he left behind a manifesto saying he was going to kill a bunch of people because this was his way of getting back at women for not having sex with him. Uh <laughs> And he was hailed on the, he was hailed on the, on the manosphere and called Saint Elliot, you know, and, and, and one person actually wrote, you know, I support men actually killing women for women to realize that men are hurting and desperate because women are refusing to put out. That's how he put it. Um, so this, yes, this is very hostile and very, um, alienated group of men. And what I what I was happy though, Travis, as I found two examples of men who had been leaders on the manosphere and had become Christian. Yeah, they renounced it. You mentioned that in the book. That was so encouraging. Sorry to interrupt you there. I just was blown away by that. Go ahead and explain that for us. Well, yeah, I agree. I, I'm glad you had that reaction because I did too. Um, so one of them was known as one of the um, biggest sort of uh, pickup artists. And he was one of the most reviled pickup artists, you know, who would tell men, you know, do this, do that. If you want to, you know, pick up women for sex. And then he, but he had, he had a, um, a background in the Eastern Orthodox church and he reconverted back to Eastern Orthodoxy and, you know, de, uh, de-published all his books, which had been his source of income and, you know, announced on his webpage that he now, you know, now was going to follow Jesus. Repudiates it. Yeah. He renounced it all. I repudiated all that was, it was so encouraging. To hear that, especially in this, the internet age today where things stay out there forever. And he says, no, no longer do I own any of this. I'm taking all this down. I was encouraged. Yeah, by and, that. and there was another one too. And, and in both cases, you know, I put them in there because I wanted to pe- people to be encouraged that even the most alienated of men, you know, can be reached with the gospel. Here were two cases of men who had both been leaders, you know, in, in this community and the manosphere. Uh, not just fringe people, not just ha- hangers on, but actual leaders 
who had come to a conversion experience and had, uh, like you said, repudiated all of their misogyny, all of their language about using women just for sex and women. Oh, yeah. The, uh, the guy who became Eastern Orthodox, he had a quote that I included where he said, my first assumption on meeting a woman is dirty, worthless whore. I mean, <laughs> you know, that's that's my assumption of women. So he repudiated all that. And I, I just think it really shows the pop, the power of the gospel and that we should never give up on anyone, no matter how extreme they seem. We're going to take a quick break and hear a word from our sponsors and we'll be right back. The most important Bible translation is the one you read. At Apollos Watered, we use several different translations when we're studying, preaching, or teaching. But again and again, we keep coming back to the New Living Translation, the NLT. That's why we are excited to partner together. We are united in the belief that understanding the Bible changes everything. Because if you can't understand it, then you won't read it. We want you to know the God of the Bible, to water your faith so that you will water your world. That's why we recommend getting an NLT. It's the Bible in the language we speak. It's not foreign or complicated, but up close and personal. To save some money, go to Tyndale.com. Use the promo code NLTBibles. It will give you 15% off. There's an NLT for everyone, from kids to adults, devotional Bibles, study Bibles, and so much more. Get one today, because understanding the Bible changes everything, and the NLT is the Bible you can understand. When you were doing the research for this, what was the biggest surprise that you found? You, you, you mentioned something that I wanted to respond to when you said. Um, sure, go ahead. I was going to spin off from when you said uh, men, what did you say? Men are you're really called to be considerate and respectful and so on. Um, yeah. Uh, and this might also be one of the most surprising things. So the first, uh, the first cross-cultural cross-cultural uh, study of masculinity was done a few years ago and by an anthropologist. And what he discovered was that no matter how different their views of masculinity were, all cultures share what he called the three Ps, the expectation that men will provide, protect, and procreate, you know, build into the next generation. And he said, it's, it's universal. It's everywhere. You know, men are made in God's image. They do know what manhood is meant to be, that their unique strengths, you know, biologically men are bigger, stronger, faster, and that their unique strengths are made not so that they can dominate others, but to provide, protect, and procreate. And I start the book, and that reminds me of another study that I started the book with. And um, uh, as I mentioned, this was the most controversial book I've written. And when... uh you know, I, I taught it in my class and I had some reading groups to sort of uh, rub off the rough edges. And, and when they would tell their friends about it, invariably, the first question would be, whose side is she on? You know, with that tone, with that tone, whose side is she on? You know, is she, is she some angry feminist bashing men or is she some, you know, reactionary? Um, and then the second question was always, and why is a woman writing a book on masculinity anyway? <laughs> And so I found that I had to rewrite chapter one over and over to try to overcome that initial barrier. You know, so many people just wanted to write it off immediately. Um, and one of the things I found the most helpful was to cite another study. This was by a sociologist. Um, his, he's, he's fairly well known. So he speaks all around the world and he's turned it into a, into a study where he asks young men two questions, you know, from Australia to, Germany to Ecuador, he asked them two questions. And the first question is, um, what does it mean to be a good man? If you go to a funeral and they say he was a good man, what does that mean? And the men had no question, no, no, no problem answering that. They said, and I'll, and I'll actually read it. So you get their exact words, honor, duty, integrity, sacrifice, do the right thing, stand up for the little guy. Be a, be a provider, a protector, be responsible, be generous. And the sociologists would ask them, where'd you get that? And they'd say, well, it's just in the air we breathe. In the air we breathe, that book that you just interviewed, uh, the author. Um, and in the, in a Western culture, they would often say it's part of our Judeo-Christian heritage. 
And then he would say, he would, the, the sociologists would ask a follow-up question and he would say, well, what does it mean if I say to you, man up, be a real man? And invariably the young man would say, no, 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 that's completely different. That's not the same thing at all. And they would say, and I'll, again, I'm reading this. It means be tough, strong, never show weakness, win at all costs, tuck it up, be competitive, get rich, get laid. So. In other words, there are two competing scripts for masculinity. You know, not, not that every trait listed in the real man is bad, uh, but if it's disconnected from a moral vision, then certainly things like, well, get rich, get laid. <laughs> um, those are the things we often identify as toxic. Um, and, but it helped, it helped disarm people when I wrote my book, because then they didn't just say, whose side is she on? Like, you have to be all for men. You know, be, 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 be defensive on their behalf, or you have to be completely against them, you know, talking about how toxic and, and harmful they are. No, you can say there are two scripts out there. Men are made in God's image and they do know what the good man is universally. This guy's found it all around the world, but they also experience the cultural pressure to be the real man. And the main Debate or discussion today is not necessarily between men and women. It's within men's old head between these two competing scripts. And what that means is we don't just charge men with being toxic. You know, nobody responds well <laughs> to being called toxic. <laughs> nobody does. And so instead, it, it, it suggests a different strategy. The strategy is how can we help affirm men and what they already know is the ideal of the good man. You know, Romans 2, you know, we, we already know God's law is written in our hearts. So the strategy is how can we affirm and support and encourage men to be the good man that they already know? That's a very important point, I think. That, and you bring it out very, very well. You actually answered a lot of my questions even in there. As you were talking about how do we bring this out? How do men, men do know this. They do know what this idea of a good man is. Even though in our culture today, there are so many households that don't have dads. And you allude to this where you talk about how one man in the pandemic started a YouTube channel in dad, how do I, I, I think that was it. Or how do I do this? And so they said within just a few months or days, there were millions of people because so many people are growing up without fathers in the household. And I know having been a pastor in the city of Chicago, working with teenagers, that I had a, I had one evening where I had about 20 young men on my back porch and only three of wow. them had dads in the household. And so there, it is a crisis. And this is a cross culture. This is not just one that's in one ethnic group or another. We had just a plethora of young men from all different ethnic backgrounds in an urban setting. And you just saw this across the board. I, I do love how the, how you have alluded to the fact that this idea of masculinity does run across the board. It might look different in different cultures, but biblically, we see this masculinity is calling us to something deeper and something that is very countercultural to what we see right now. As you've delved into this subject, and I know the book hasn't been released as of this conversation yet, but there are some, I am sure, even within evangelical Christianity, are going to have a difficult time with this idea because of what we have seen it alluded to it, it that's you said this will be my most controversial or it's already a controversial book what have you heard from other people that they have deemed it to be controversial well let me start with the fatherless boys because um sure i, I think that the long-term solution to toxic behavior in men is better fathers I cite one psychiatrist who says, we're not going to have a better class of men until we have a better class of fathers because fathers raising their kid, their sons is the most important long-term solution. And so we have to look at fatherhood and everybody knows that fathers are mocked and ridiculed and made the butt of the joke in the media today. Um, but they know you that even, you even cite TV shows. You talk about Archie Bunker. You talk about how there was this trend where, and you, I can't remember the, the first television show that did it, but one television show made him to be a bumbling oaf. And from that moment on, every TV show had the dad as the bumbling oaf. Yeah. Yeah. Whether it's a, a anime, you know, animated cartoons and so on. I mean, Homer Simpson might be the one we know the best. Um, 
but people know that, but they don't know why. And once again, it goes back to the Industrial Revolution, because for the first time, fathers were out of the home all day. And already in the 19th century, you see this in the literature where people began to express concern that fathers are no longer integrated into the family dynamics. They don't know what their kids are doing. They're not connected to their kids. They're not tuned into their kids' needs and feelings and emotions and experiences. And you begin to get some people saying, well, fathers are just irrelevant and fathers are incompetent as parents because, you know, if you're gone all week, of course you don't know quite what to do <laughs> with your kids. So already you get, you get a lot of people starting to say, you know, our, our kids are growing up without fathers and this is not a good thing. And especially for boys, because boys were the ones, of course, who were working their fathers in the fields, you know, or in the family industry. And all of a sudden, boys had a lot of free, unsupervised time. And uh, the 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 idea that boys will be boys, you know, that boys are sort of naturally rambunctious and rowdy and rule breaking. That's when that started. Nobody had that a- attitude toward boys before. That stereotype didn't exist. It came out of the 19th century when boys lost their fathers and mothers tried to step into the gap. But of course, you know, the boys could tell that the mother's life was different from their fathers. And so when mo- mothers tried to impose structure or moral, moral principles, it seemed like they, they were asking boys to be girlish, you know, be feminine. And so, of course, boys rejected that. The um, most prominent psych- psychologist of the day said, never before in American history have boys been so wild and so half orphaned half orphan because you know, the fathers weren't there and and left up to female guidance in home and school and church and so this is when the idea rose up that to be the real boy was to rebel against you know those feminine structures that were being posed in home <laughs> church and school and to be sort of wild and rule breaking and of course when these those boys grew up they brought that with them so it led into what you talked about earlier with novels portraying men as, you know, the way to recover your true manhood is to get away, you know, is to get away from civilization and to get away from the civilizing impact of women and family and so on. So the the image of fatherhood that we have today is a direct result of the Industrial Revolution when fathers were essentially taken out of the home. And so, again, the solution is. For men to find ways, even, you know, you can't reduce, you can't reverse the industrial revolution, but can we find ways to find some flexibility for fathers to be more involved with their kids? And I make the suggestion in the book that churches should make a higher priority of having a ministry to fatherless boys. I don't know that they, that many, many church churches identify that as a specific ministry yet. But I think they need to because the the studies do show that father substitutes can have an incredible impact. Church youth leaders, coaches, teachers, and so on can have a real impact. And so I, I think we have to have a much more intentional approach to fatherless kids, but especially fatherless boys. I found that photo in the sofa And it's from way back in the one so I guess there's much I never told you Like who I am, who I love, where I've been and where I came from My my father died when I was four. So I grew up in a single parent household. My mother remarried later, but I, I looked for male examples any place I could find them. And being raised around women, I became more intuitive. But at the same time, I didn't have that what at the time I thought more was that masculine trait. Like my friends were out hunting. They were, and I just didn't have interest in that. And, and my father could have been alive and I may not still have had that interest. I don't think he did, but I did look for that. And I saw that when I was in the inner city doing a lot of ministry is how important those role models were. And I remember reading some research by Christian Smith, where he was looking at how, how so many young people, when they become believers in, Christ, have they grown up in the church, but the parents lived out what they said. They suffered for their faith, but they also isolated a third thing. They said, if there was an adult outside of the, the close family 
that reiterated what the parents were saying, they were more likely to stay within the church, which just shows that idea that you're talking about, these structures of family that help teach us and be together and not so be isolated on our screens and computers. I mean, we are. It's the way we're at right now as a culture, but you're seeing a pushback as people are trying to figure out and people are seeing that the world is catechizing us and we need to be able to fight back. And you give some real positive examples of men that I thought were doing that. As though this book is going to be out in the public square and people are going to respond, there are going to be, I would think, some are saying, well, what about femininity? What, what about that? Is there a toxic femininity that's out there? And how do, we, how do we keep these two in tension? How do we highlight this masculinity? And yet, how do we also talk about where women and the contributions they've made when traditionally, at least from a societal or secular perspective, women have been put down and their contributions have been minimized? How do we keep both of these intentions in a, in a positive way that we can uphold both genders and what God has made them to be as both image bearers in, in, in serving Christ and extending his kingdom in the world? Yeah, so, I mean, it is a book on men, so I deal briefly with women. I deal with women a little bit more in my earlier book, uh, Total Truth. But, of course, the Industrial Revolution, when it took men's work out of the home, it took women's work out of the home as well. You know, women used to be involved in a lot of household manufacture. They used to make you know, canned can foods and make their own clothes from scratch and make make buttons and make candles and, uh, you know, make butter, whatever. Make, make bread from scratch every day. <laughs> um, uh, women had a real economic contribution to make. And even if they didn't have a lot of uh, political rights, they had a strong sense of their economic indispensability, which really bolstered their, their, their self-esteem. Um, you know, they knew, they knew that they were indispensable to the household. When all of those things from bread making to fabric making to, you know, butter churning all was taken out of the home for the first time, women had no economic contribution. Instead, they became economically dependent on the wages of their husbands. This was a huge loss in status. Most people don't think of it that way. But if you're not making a real contribution, I mean, already in the 19th century, you see newspaper writers starting to condemn women at home and say they're idle, they're lazy, they're useless, they're not contributing anything, they just take their husband's money and spend it. I mean, that language already was starting in the 19th century. And because women were not making an economic uh, contribution, they also had less voice in the home. In other words, if they asked their husbands to contribute to the housework and the childbearing, well, that was her job, you know, so that was that was nagging. Um, so. I think it's important to recognize that women also lost a lot in the Industrial Revolution. And we need to come back to the cultural mandate. Women are not just isolated to raising children and keeping the house clean. Um, but women also were made to subdue the earth. Many women, I mean, I, I mean, I love raising children. I, I had a blast raising kids. I love it. Um, but a lot of us do have talents and skills and interests and abilities that do go beyond what can be done in the modern household. Um, and I think the answer to for women is similar as to men, which is, can we bring some of that productive work back to the home? I do know a lot of women who do already. I mean, almost every woman I know who's home raising kids is also doing some kind of income producing work. You know, they're 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 being they're having some kind of a home based business or uh, telecommuting or whatever. Uh, most most couples can't really afford it anymore unless the woman is working part time. Um, so it's uh, women are already doing this to a large extent. But I think we need to sort of rethink what that means, you know, that women are called to subdue the earth just as much as men are and that we should encourage that. Uh, finding ways to do it without um, Without just turning your kids over to, to 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 paid substitutes, though, is what I think what what troubles a lot of people is, you know, we have father absence and that's been harmful. We don't want that followed by mother absence. <laughs> you know, then who raises the kids? Why bother having them if you're not going to raise them? So I'm really big on raising young kids. I mean, I homeschooled my two sons and because um, I loved it. I mean, I just loved being with them all the time. Um, so but but I also. Uh, you can see uh, behind me, I have my books. 
I was always working part time while I raised my kids. So I was, you know, editing books while sitting alongside the karate class, <laughs> you know, editing books while sitting beside the uh, swimming lessons and so on. And people would come and say, yeah, what are you doing? Uh, I'm working. I'm editing a book. <laughs> and and they, they weren't expecting that. But I did. I, I did a lot of work um, in my car office. Well, I had one son who worked, did, did a volunteer work at a nature center. And I sat outside in my car office doing my work. Um, so women for a long time have been using the, you know, this kind of flexibility to try to keep their intellect and their other interests going while raising their kids. And I, I think we should really work hard on, on making that as much as possible. The, uh, the ideal for both parents. Can we, in a sense, recreate some of the ethos of the colonial age where the family, you know, had so much more cohesion? You know, the economic interdependence really reinforced their sense of emotional interdependence and made the family much stronger. Mm. I would agree. And not just in the colonial period. I know you're, you've rooted in American history, but we go back in the scriptures. And just seeing how people worked alongside. I mean, I think of Ruth as she's out there gleaming and we, we just need this, a better and more robust biblical understanding of how these two come together. And what does it mean to be engendered and embodied, especially in our culture today that seems to be pulling us in all, all manner of ways. We need to be able to embrace the very basic parts of our humanity as engendered image bearers of God in the midst of our society, fulfilling the cultural mandate together. As, as we finish up here, and thank you for being so generous with your time, what do you hope that God does with this book? Oh, well, as you know, I'm an apologist at heart. You know, I, I'm, I'm a fighter. I want to defend Christian, the Christian worldview on all fronts. And so, you know, I go into this with how can we defend the Christian view of manhood? Basically, you know, Christians, the Christian view of manhood is under attack. A vicious attack and, and you know often from christians too um you 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 did mention jesus and john wayne i was careful not to mention that in my book <laughs> you did i saw you mention the john wayne you didn't mention jesus and john wayne but i saw and there's other oh, books no. that are out there i mean no i i and i had jesus i do have jesus and james bond as a subtitle <laughs> <laughs> but i i didn't want to get involved in fights but it is true that even Christian books are out there attacking Christian men. And uh, so so at, at heart, you know, my goal is to defend the Christian understanding of men and women, and especially masculinity, since that's what's under attack. And, you know, one thing we didn't touch on that uh, might be worth talking about a bit is um, people do say, well, what do you think is the difference between men and women then? And so I had to put that in chapter one, too. You know, it's one of those questions you just have to cover at the beginning. And it's and I just say, hey, let's start with biology. You know, you can't really argue with biology um, because most of the controversial things are whether you talk about whether, you know, women's uh, mental abilities and intelligence. Well, let's start with biology. Men are bigger, faster, stronger. They have more fast twitch muscles. That's a word I had to learn. It means you can react more quickly. They have 75 percent greater upper body muscle mass, 90 percent greater upper body strength and the and testosterone does make men more aggressive uh, more risk-taking and these are good these are created abilities that god made men to have and therefore they are good and we have to find ways to communicate you know that we we value we, we support the way god made men and the the reason that people uh often resist wanting to acknowledge differences is because as soon as you acknowledge a difference you kind of imply that somebody else is less than. So it's very important that we don't imply that women are less than because they're not physically as strong. And, and we can talk about by sticking just to biology again. Um, women's superpower is having kids. And we have to acknowledge that that too is a strength and that, you know, taking care of a newborn takes an enormous amount of character. It means you have to be willing to be interrupted at any time during the day no, and stop whatever you're doing, whether you want to or not, you know, 3 a.m. for the feeding. Uh, you have to be uh, when a, a child, when a baby is in distress, you don't scold it. You don't reason with it. You know, you alleviate its distress. 
You have to be, uh, become incredibly sensitive to nonverbal cues because the baby can't talk yet. <laughs> and you have to become very sensitive to threats in the environment. You know, this is why women need to become mama bears because they have to, in a sense, identify with their child's vulnerability in order to be aware of threats in the environment. So these are all very positive character qualities. And I think we don't spend enough time saying what's good about the unique, uniquely uh, female qualities, uh, because the masculine qualities have been held up as, as better. I mean, so much of the feminist movement is saying, oh, men do this, well, we can do it too, <laughs> which is, you know, often true. But it also tends to say that what, whatever men do is, is the standard. So I think it's important that we say, no, there are uniquely women's strengths, feminine strengths as well, and hold, the, hold these up as character strengths. Um, and, and men have more testosterone, women do have more estrogen, and estrogen is known as one of the bonding hormones. You know, it makes them more relational. It makes them more connected. And so, you know, this is, this is what we bring, what we bring to the table, and it should be valued as much as men's strengths are. And I think that's something that we've really undervalued, as you've mentioned before. But I, I'm, I'm beginning to wonder, as I'm looking at the current cultural moment that we're in, is we're seeing especially the war on women's sports go on, where you're hearing people and even athletes saying, it's different. We are different. It is physically impossible that I can do some of these things because our culture has believed this lie that you can, you know, one is bad or one is good. It's not. They're just, I don't know why our culture in this moment can't see the beauty in the differences between men and women and the strengths that men and women have. And the, the, I mean, even as you mentioned, women more are aware of more fear. I think that was part of the big that you mentioned where women are more online. I, mean, I remember my wife saying there's stuff that I think about that you don't think about when I'm walking to my car at night, I am on, my head is on a swivel. I am ready to go. And you don't think about that. And I remember reading an article where a man, uh, one woman said, I've noticed that when men age, when they get to a certain age, then they become more aware of what women are dealing with because they're less strong and protective that they actually have to be aware of their surroundings. But do you see our society in this moment as we're in this huge cultural chaos of confusion when it comes to gender and men and women and masculinity? Do you see a, even in the secular world, a shift where the pendulum goes the other way and people are responding and, and are going to hold on to traditional societal traditional norms when it comes to gender and men and women, do you think we're, we're going to see that anytime soon? Well, there's somewhat of that with the Jordan Peterson phenomenon, right? That he's affirming young men, at, you know, the masculinity. Um, and this one is not as well known yet, but on the, on the female side, um, have you run into, uh, th there's some very liberal feminists who are now uh, swinging with the pendulum and becoming more conservative. And the one I like the best is Louise Perry, who wrote a book called The Case Against the Sexual Revolution. Is, is she in Britain? Mm -hmm. Yes, yes. Because yes, I heard she started going to the same church where Tom Holland goes. <laughs> I hope they talk together. <laughs> well, he actually talked to her about that. And she started going to church because Glenn Scribner was on the show and he alluded to that fact in our conversation. He said she's a fascinating woman. She's not a Christian yet. He said, but she yeah. is moving in that direction because she sees how the sexual revolution is completely bunk, completely bunk. But how did she see it? Let me tell you this. Um, how did she see it? So she was very leftist. She wrote for leftist publications. And then she started working at a rape center, a rape shelter. And all of a sudden she realized that all this feminist language of, you know, we're just as good as men. We can do whatever men want. Whatever men do, we can do better. <laughs> um, and then she looked at the sheer physical differences. In rape, what it means is the man is using his greater strength to overpower you. And if you don't acknowledge that men have greater strength, you won't put moral restraints on it. You must acknowledge the differences if you're going to hold men accountable, if you're going to make them responsible for, for what they do with that greater strength. I thought that was fascinating that that was the turning point for her. And she began to look at, okay, you know, all the rules about chivalry, hey, they actually made sense because you have to hold men in. And those older rules about being a gentleman, you know, all of those sort of traditional rules make a whole lot more sense 
when you realize that the whole point of them was to rein in, restrain, put moral restraints on men's greater strength. Um, and, and, uh, I actually became more conservative in writing this book. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, I had little, little, uh, hanging on from my feminist background. Uh, this book, you know, because nominal men have the highest rate of domestic violence in America, higher than secular men, I had to deal with that in the book. I, you know, otherwise it would look like I was just shoving it under the carpet. So I do have two chapters at the end on, uh, physical abuse in Christian homes. And I had the same, I had the same response that Louise Perry did. I came to see that if we do not acknowledge men's greater strength, we will not, you know, put the restraints on it that we need to. We have to acknowledge that men are stronger. We have to acknowledge the differences. Uh, you, you mentioned a moment ago, the greater fear that, that came from, uh, a, a psychological study. Well, more than one, a couple of psychological studies that all found that women are more prone to fear. Well, of course they are. <laughs> even, a secu- <laughs> even a secular person says this makes evolutionary sense. You know, the evolutionist says this makes sense because women are smaller and weaker physically. They are more. Uh, vulnerable to sexual assault. And when sexual assault happens, they have greater re- uh, consequences, namely pregnancy. So of course it makes sense uh, that women would, I know, as secular people, they would say they are evolutionary programmed. <laughs> it makes sense that women would have more, more fear because uh, one, one uh, psychologist said, this is the greatest, this is actually the greatest psychological difference between men and women that women are more prone to fear. And you can see it even in infants, even in newborns. They test newborns by uh, uh, with a sudden noise. You know, how do they react to being startled by a sudden noise? Boys, all the way when they're infants, boys respond to a sudden noise by getting angry. How annoying. Who are you? <laughs> I'm going to get back at you. Girls respond by getting afraid. I mean, you see this even in infants. So it's amazing that... Uh, we need to acknowledge these differences if we're going to have healthy relationships between men and women. Well, you, there's so much that we could talk about, Nancy. I know when we get, every time we get on a conversation, we can talk for hours about this because even though you said something, I, I kept thinking of the study where you alluded to in that same part where if a man yelled in his home, the, the children would react even in a greater, more, I mean, fearful because of the man's voice was bigger and boomer. I, I know in my house, when I, when I get loud, my family notices this. I get loud when I can't find a parking space and I have to go to the bathroom. So my kids, it's become a running joke for them, but they get nervous because I get mad. I get mad really easy and my, my angry and they're walking on eggshells. And even reading some of the instances of men getting angry in this book where they didn't even realize the power of their anger and just their mere presentation of their voice, put fear in their family. And I, that caused me to want to pull back to be much more aware of things and how they go about. Now, I, I do want to finish on one little part here. As you mentioned, you alluded to abuse. We, we did an episode a while back with Michael Kruger on spiritual abuse within churches. And there's in no way should any Christian household have any type of abuse, emotional, spiritual, sexual, any which way. But you you gave a kind of a word of caution because some women have been abused and they've gone to their leaders and their leaders did not handle it well. They said it's either blamed them for soliciting that type of abuse or and telling them to go back into those situations. I just want to make sure that everyone hears our conversation right now. And I want you to make a I want you to say this. What did you why did you include that part? within this book, talking about abuse, especially within a Christian. And I'm going to put air quotes. Let's hope they're not Christian. Let's put them in the nominal category, best case scenario there. Yeah. In terms of statistics, it is important to recognize that uh, even church going Christian men, do. there is a a percentage who are abusive. I think it was 2%. uh, I'm going by memory. Um, So it's a a small number, but there are, there are even um, men who attend church regularly, like my father. Yes. You mentioned that in the book. I started the book with my father. He was severely physically abusive, but man, he was out of it about being in church every Sunday. So there is a small percentage, even among church going men. Most of them, however, are nominal, nominal. That's, that's true. Um, but I included that because 
because <laughs> up until very recently, this has been the main response of the part of the church has been, you know, well, you need to love more. You need to forgive more. You need to make his favorite foods more. You need to have sex more. It's your job to fix your marriage. Even if the f- husband is actually being abusive, the church has largely held the woman responsible. Uh, when I was getting, uh, when I was a young woman, a Christian woman told me, you know, it, it, in marriage, you know, you give 70% and your husband gives 30%. That's how it works. Well, that's how a lot of people see it. And I, I and I, I give plenty of examples to show, uh, you know, the, the bad, the bad responses that Christian women have gotten. And it's only recently, I was so happy. I'm glad I wrote the book when I did. <laughs> Because now, very recently, you're starting to get people acknowledging that one adult cannot make another adult stop being abusive by just being kind and loving. Because abusive people really do take forgiveness as permission to keep doing it. They take um, kindness as weakness. And if you just keep, you know, forgiving, you're not holding him accountable and he has no reason to change. So I I included it because until very recently, this is the main response women have gotten from Christian leaders and Christian counselors. And so I, I, you know, canvassed the literature and found all the quotes I could from people saying, no, actually, the response to abuse is Matthew 18. Matthew 18 is the verse on how to hold people accountable. If somebody's sinning, you hold them accountable. That's the that's your first step. Um, and yes, you want to start with loving, loving confrontation, but it is confrontation. You have to say this is wrong. You have to be a sister of the Lord before you're a wife. You know, I mean, we're, we're both, you know, a husband and wife are brother and sister in the Lord first. And husband and wife should be on top of that. You know, it shouldn't, it, it shouldn't contradict that. Mm-hmm. So, uh, I, I, like I said, I was just very happy that the, the language is finally starting to change. And you're finally starting to see some Christian leaders saying we need to support women. And of course, men, too. But numerically speaking, statistically, it is mostly a male thing, uh, abuse in marriage. And I quoted non-Christian and Christians on this. So we can kind of say, yes, uh, the the church, Stephen Tracy at um, Phoenix Seminary says the church needs to tell women it's okay to stand up to men who are disrespecting them. And it's the church's job to support the woman. He has a ministry called Mending the Mm -hmm. Soul. And he's one, he was one of my favorite um, Mm -hmm. sources. At any rate, yes, it's very, very recent. And if you talk to most women my age, they've, they've lived for years with people telling them it's your fault. What did you do? What did you do? Yes, he Mm -hmm. shouldn't have hit you, but what did you do that made him hit you? We have lived with that for years. Yeah. (laughs) So I just, just to let you know firsthand, yeah. we have lived with that for years, and it is so refreshing to see that the the literature is starting to change and say, no, we have to hold men accountable. If there's actual sin in a marriage, you don't start by saving the marriage. You start by addressing the sin. That's your first goal. These are so many of the subjects that we've touched on today. You've elaborated into the book. I do recommend the book to people, um, and I'm excited for it to to see what God does with it. We often like to end our show with what we call the water bottle for the week. We are Apollos watered after all. What is a water bottle that we can give to people to sip on as a result of our conversation today? Do you know, can I say again that I'm an apologist and my main goal is just to defend Christianity over against uh, the accusations of the secular culture? You know, this was the final trigger. I mean, I thought of writing the book. But the final trigger was the sociological data showing that Christian men are doing so well. And the churches don't preach this. You know, Christians don't know this. And so let's really dig into that. And how can we affirm, affirm our Christian men, you know, affirm them for what they're doing well and encourage them and support them and help them just to do even better. I mean, you do better when you know that you're already doing well, right? <laughs> I mean, you know, I play the violin. If somebody says, oh, that sounds horrible, I quit. <laughs> yeah. But if somebody says, hey, that sounds kind of nice, then you keep trying, you keep working. So the best way 
to help Christian men is to affirm them for what they're already doing very well. Mm. So bring out, bring out the, well, bring out those parts of this book. I mean, it's, it's the chapters two and three. So if, if you don't focus on anything else, you know, focus on those two chapters and maybe even look up some of my sources so that you can, you know, bring in additional uh, research. The, the main one is Brad Wilcox because he's written a whole book mm. and well, you know, it's, it's kind of academic, but okay. <laughs> think of it. So, but if you read those two chapters and say, okay, let's just start there. Affirming, supporting, encouraging Christian men by saying they're already doing a good job. Just do more of it. Mm. I love how you mentioned in the book that on Mother's Day, women get the praise in church, but on Father's Day, dads get said to do better. And I have a, I, 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 a church that I served at, the lead pastor at one of our campuses, his wife went to him and she goes, I'm so tired of you doing this. She said, what I want you to do is I want you to praise the men for being fathers. But she goes, if you're going to go after the men, you have to go after the wives too. We both need to do better in some respect. And there's, so it was an equal thing. And he really appreciated that. And I know a lot of pastors are like, I'm not touching that because they're fearful of it. They're going to get the response because they know how much women sacrifice but I do think what you said is true. We do need to affirm what's there. Men have been so accused in especially the last several years and sometimes rightfully so, but you're helping us look at the pendulum and bring it back the other way to say, what does the scripture say? What does the data really show? Not just in uh, anecdotes and what the secular media is telling us, but what do we see being worked out in people as we delve in deeper and not just accept the the Christian whole label, but we separate it into those who really are trying to live it out. And we find something very different than what the secularized world is telling us. I want to thank you for writing the book. I do recommend it again, Baker books. Where can we get that? You can get this at any bookstore online, Amazon, check it out. And one of your other books, I see them behind you. Cause we've talked about love thy body, total truth, saving Leonardo. You've got a lot of books that are out there, but really thank you. Yes. So I have a, a website. I do have a website, netsupiracy.com. And so you can go there and, and, and have a chance to check out what else I've done. And yeah, right now, um, if you, if you, if you want to, you can pre-order the masculinity book and uh, the publisher is really pushing pre-orders this time because they finally figured out it, it, it uh, helps the algorithms, <laughs> you know, Amazon will give it greater uh, publicity if it, if you get a good, a uh, good spike from pre-orders. So just to say, if you, if you're so inclined, go ahead and pre-order it. Pre-order it and you can pre-order it on, do you do it on Baker or can do you get it, it on Amazon? doesn't matter. Yeah, well, it's Amazon, you know, Amazon uh, is what, is what determines everything now. So pre-order on Amazon, you can get it from the publisher as well um, or christianbook.com or wherever your favorite place is to order books. Okay. Make sure that we put that on the link and we'll have that in the show notes available for people that they can purchase, uh, uh, purchase it when they, if they have opportunity. But again, Nancy, thank you for coming on Apollo's Water. This was great. Yeah, this was great. This was fun. A lot, uh, a very in-depth conversation. So I, I've enjoyed it. Nancy wants to affirm Christian men and encourage us to do better. Things aren't as bleak for Christians as many would like us to think. Look, we know that there are problems, for sure. There's abuse and there's no excuse for it. I know that one of the most popular shows right now on Amazon is Shiny Happy People. About the Duggar clan and the groups that they were a part of. And I know that the show is not for everyone, but it's enlightening. Even if the show is produced by people who really don't care about Christianity. Because truth is truth, simply put. And we have to admit it when and where we have strayed from the biblical model of masculinity and we need to change. Seriously. Here at Apollos Watered, we like to say that the gospel affirms something and challenges something in every culture. Every single culture without exception. Even so, though, there are some things that are universal. They're universal because our God is universal. A God who created and sustains everything. It should not be a surprise to us, then, that there are certain aspects about masculinity that every culture on earth sees. We are here to provide, protect, and appropriate. That's a point of contact for the gospel. Seriously. For the way that God created men to be. The question is, are we living up to it? And how are the alternate visions of masculinity failing? Not only men, but society as a whole. 
as we like to rethink, reimagine, and then redeploy in our pursuit of Christ's mission in our culture, we need to seriously look at the way the church has both succeeded and failed men. We need to be vigilant in what we are doing, and we need to look out for those who are falling through the cracks, the ones without fathers, who are tempted toward very unhealthy views of themselves and of women. That's why some of these YouTube personalities pick up so much steam because men or young men are desperate for anyone to tell them what it means to be a man in our society today. It doesn't just happen. Nancy's book is a great starting place for us to do that work of rethinking, and it sets us on a path to reimagine a healthy, godly masculinity, then to redeploy to help others along the way. I, I really recommend the book that you get a copy. Order it now because they love it when you pre-order stuff, but this is a book that you're going to want to hand off to other people. Just like her last book, Love Thy Body, which we loved, you're going to love this one as well. And I want to encourage you to check out this conversation on our YouTube channel and be sure to subscribe. I want to thank our Apollos Water team for helping us to water the world. This is Travis Michael Fleming signing off from Apollos Water. Stay watered, everybody.